Well, during World War I, British General Edmund Allenby, uh, a Christian, uh, actually strapped up his troops and got ready to go to war with uh, the Turks for Jerusalem. He was trying to take it back. And he actually was able to accomplish this without even taking a shot. So the story goes that he had planes fire, uh, fly over the city, dropping flyers that essentially said, give up, you have no chance, signed Edmund Allenby. Uh, now, this might be lore, I'm not sure, but it appears that when the Turks and the Arabs read those notes, that letter, and saw his name, they interpreted it in a couple of different ways. So as Arabs read it, they read it as Allah Nabi, which means prophet of God. So a prophet of God just dropped a note saying, drop your weapons. And so they did and they ran. And then the Turks also read it. And when they read it, they read scourge of God and they got terrified and they ran as well so that they were actually able to walk into the city without lifting an arm. Now, when General Allenby approached the city, he was on a white war horse. This is World War I. And he actually dismounted it, we are told, bowed his head and walked humbly through the gate. Now, legend has it explained uh, that he said the reason that he dismounted his horse was this. He said, I will not ride a horse into the city into which my Lord rode a donkey. Now, all four Gospels tell of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday around 33 AD on a donkey that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, clearly, the triumphal entry should elicit humility and knock us off our high horses. I think that's a clear meaning of the story. But this morning, we're going to take a look more closely at this event in John 12, 12 to 19 that was just read. As we reflect on the meaning of Palm Sunday, uh, which as Mark just prayed about, is actually our 51st anniversary as a church. That's good news, right? Like, that's encouraging. We should clap about that. Maybe not during the prayer, but right now, this is a good time. And so we're going to be thinking about this on Palm Sunday, about this triumphal entry. Now, uh, just to catch you up to speed in the book of John, uh, if you're trying to understand the gospel of John, uh, the purpose of John we find in John chapter 20, verse 31. In John 20, 31, we're told what the whole book is about. And John writes, it's that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, as you look at the book itself, the first 12 chapters, uh, John is basically uncovering and exposing these different signs, seven signs that Jesus performed to reveal himself as the Messiah, which culminates in a seventh sign that's mentioned in our text today. That's where Jesus raised Lazarus, his good friend, from the dead. That happens in chapter 11, right before the chapter that we're in this morning. Yet what we find, despite all of these amazing signs that so many people witnessed, they, we find that the Israelites, the Jews, were not believing in Jesus and trusting that he was who he said he was. So the whole first 12 chapters is basically about you've got all of this evidence and yet you still not, do not believe in Jesus Christ. Now, when we find Jesus raising some, someone from the dead, Lazarus, his good friend, uh, you would think that that would be a, a really good sign that you can trust Jesus, right? I mean, in my house, we have a rule. If anybody raises somebody from the dead, they have the floor, right? You're going to listen to what they have to say. It's not really written down. It's just sort of understood. But John 12 marks the end of this first half of John, and it just shows how the Jews again and again rejected Jesus. And even Jesus' own disciples failed to fully grasp his identity and mission until after his resurrection. For instance, in the verses that are immediately before this, Judas is complaining in 
John 12, 1 to 8, about money. And the Jews, you'll notice, are seeking to kill Jesus and Lazarus because people keep on believing in Lazarus because he's not dead anymore. See, John 12, 1 to 8 is recording Judas's complaints about Mary wasting a bottle of expensive perfume when she uses her hair to anoint his feet. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So already as we're entering into this triumphal entry, Jesus has told them that he's going to die. And not only that, in verses 9 to 11 that come right after that, uh, we are quickly reminded that the Jews sought to kill the man Jesus raised from the dead. And in verse 10 it says this, Chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because, or on account of, him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so we have a, a death of Jesus that's foretold, and then we also are told about a resurrection that's just happened. And so death and resurrection are right in the purview as he's entering into this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And you know that after this event, after Jesus' entry, uh, this gospel is going to begin to speed in the following chapters towards the cross. Uh, The upper uh, room discourse is going to come in John 13 to 17. And then the passion of Christ is in chapters 18 to 20. And the resurrection appearances come to us in 21. But here, like elsewhere in this gospel, Jesus, or John, is exposing us to this enigmatic king who who seems to be the king they've waited for, but is so much different than what they expected. And he creates new categories of what it looks like for them to understand who the Messiah is. So this morning, what we want to think about, this is our big idea, it is that a humble Jesus came to save the whole world, or the world. A humble Jesus came to save the world. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Humble Jesus came to save the world. And as we do that, I want to just begin by praying and asking for God's help. So will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you, our great God. And Father, we have already been thinking about the nature of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he came to do and the mission that you sent him on. But Father, as we come this morning, we know that uh, our hearts are prone to wonder. Uh, They are prone to be distracted from your word. And Father, we know as even we read this morning, there are those that were in the presence of your Son and yet did not see clearly who he was. And so Father, as we come to your word this morning, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. We ask that he would help us, that he would help us to see Christ as Christ is. Lord, that you would help to correct wrong views that we have about Jesus, that you would help us to correct wrong views that we have about ourselves, that you would bless us with the life-giving revelation of your Son, Jesus, as he truly is, Lord. Lord, take and shape us this morning through the preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. Now, the first thing that we're going to see here is in verses 12 to 13, and that's this, that the king arrives to palm branches. The king arrives to palm branches. Now, the large crowd that you'll see mentioned here uh, would have largely comprised of Galilean pilgrims and the larger group of disciples that were following Jesus. Uh, Jewish historian Josephus estimated that at this time during the Passover that this event would have occurred, there were something like 2,700,000 people that would have descended on the city. Uh, Josephus exaggerates a lot. Um, So maybe it it was something like that. Probably just meant a lot of people. Like the city would have been packed with people. Crowds would have been everywhere, descended on Passover week. The crowds were overwhelming. And just for the record, 
As R.T. France says, this crowd that cries out, Hosanna, is going to be largely different than the Jerusalem crowd that would later cry out, crucify him. Different crowd. That's what brings us to this text this morning. So look with me again at verses 12 to 13, and let's read those. Here's what it says in John 12, 12 to 13. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, the crowd erupts with a hero's welcome as Jesus arrives and they are shouting praises to the King of Israel. Now, this this praise seems to be from Psalm 118, 25 to 26. Um, if you're looking at Psalm 118, uh, this comes in Psalm, the section of Psalms that is the Halal, Psalm 113 to 118, that they would have read during Passover. And so Psalm 118 was used in connection with the festivals of tabernacles, the dedication, the Passover. And these same festivals, John highlights in his gospel. So he's drawing our attention to those experiences. Now, they called it the great Halal, that section of Psalms, because of the repetitive phrase, Hallelujah, uh, which is a praise that translates something like, save us, Lord, I pray. And so they're crying out for salvation in this season. And then Psalm 118, 25 to 26 says this, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And those shouting are likely Galilean pilgrims who have accompanied Jesus along with the disciples, uh, to the city for Passover. And so they're here to celebrate the Passover event. Don Carson highlights that there is no Old Testament prescription for using palms during Passover. In fact, some have used this to believe that this is actually connected with another feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, that took six months earlier. And, And so maybe that was the feast that was being spoken of. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, the male participants, boys and men, would have waved those palm branches when the temple singers reached the crescendo of Hosanna, as they would sing, and they would wave the palm branches to glorify God. But I think these waving palms actually communicated something different on Passover that's not connected to the Tabernacles Feast per se. See, palms became a national symbol. We we know this as we look at at history. Uh, We have coins, for instance that were struck with, uh, by insurgents during the Jewish wars against Rome in 66 to 70 AD with the image of palms on them. In other words, it was an image that declared this is our sort of um, emblem that states that we are a nation. This represents us. So it was a national symbol. Carson goes on to write that it may well have signaled nationalist hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene. See, Psalm 118 looked for the Messiah, the coming king from the line of David who would come. In fact, he who comes that's mentioned in that psalm signals the expectation of a a coming Messiah or spirit-anointed king from the line of David. And then Psalm 118.22 actually calls him the stone the builders rejected. Does that sound familiar? A pretty common text that's quoted in the New Testament speaking of Jesus Christ himself. The same psalm, Psalm 118. See, this messianic psalm looks forward to the coming of a king from the line of David who would save God's people and Jews, and they used it to greet individuals as they would arrive in the temple, reminding them of the great coming king, where they celebrated God delivering them from slavery to Egypt. 
Do you remember how God delivered us in the past? Well, as you come to the temple, I want you to remind, remind you that God is for us and he can still save us from any enemy that is against us. See, Mark 11, 11's account tells us that Jesus ended his triumphal entry in the temple as he's entering in on a donkey. And the crowd, they, they had an image of what this Messiah would be like and what he would do. And I believe these palm branches anticipated a revival of political and national identity, not a revival of hearts. See, these people were expecting, they were saying something about who they saw this Jesus as being. He was going to be their political savior. That was their expectation. They sought Jesus to save them from their external enemies as a political power. He would usher in salvation. And they had expectations of King Jesus. And I'm guessing that all of us are looking for a Messiah, a king to save us now, maybe from all kinds of different things, but maybe not the things that God has come to save us from. See, we place all kinds of expectations on Jesus, don't we? I mean, maybe we don't expect him to save us from a corrupt government like the Jews who sought to be saved from Rome, but we have expectations of Jesus. We have expectations of Jesus to to save our marriages, to save our friendships, our relationships, our, our jobs. We have all kinds of ways that we look to Jesus and we're saying, we need these things fixed now. And we miss the main point of why we need Jesus. We need Jesus because we are in rebellion against God and we need to be saved from his wrath. See, our vision of what we need to be saved from is all too small. And as Jesus comes riding in on this donkey to to see his people, and as they are waving their palm branches, they speak better than they know of the kind of salvation that they need from God. But we have expectations of Jesus, and many will reject Jesus because he's not what they expect. We just know that that's the way that we work. You know, this last week, political commentator Ben Shapiro joined Phoenix for all kinds of events where he spoke about his view of politics. And it was in the news, it was all over the place. And in one of these events, there was a Q&A and somebody asked directly Ben why he wasn't a Christian, given that he's in line in so many ways with the Christian worldview. And I think the argument basically goes something like this when we ask questions like that. It's that you're conservatively, uh, you're conservative politically like, like us, so why don't you share our faith? Why is that? See, Shapiro calmly responded, because I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the question, isn't it? Whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And if he is the Messiah, then what does that mean? See, we don't have a Christian political party. I think that's a really important reality just to get kind of familiar with. We don't have a Christian political party. Shapiro understands that conservative politics don't equal Christian faith. And that's from someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. He sees that clearly. In fact, some sinful tendencies can drive our conservative politics, can't they? I mean, have you ever noticed that, that some people are conservative in their politics? Not because they really love others or want to be sacrificial, but because they want to hold on to their money and they believe that that's the best party to help them do that? Some people are conservative in their politics because they like to, to carry guns. Nothing wrong with that, okay? This is Phoenix. I would alienate everybody. But you want to feel like you are safe because you have a gun, you want to put trust in a gun rather than in God. Again, not bad to have a gun. Not everybody's doing that. But could it be that sometimes the, the things that we value, even in our politics, aren't always driven by pure motives and maybe even sinful motives, even when it's conservative and we put conservative as a label on it? See, we, we need to understand that there's not a Christian party. Shapiro understood that, that we as the people of God understand that. So I think the crowds who cried out, Hosanna, actually spoke better than they knew when they called Jesus the King of Israel. 
But they did not see Jesus as more than a political leader to deliver them from Rome. See, expectations were high, but their focus was too narrow. But catch this. Jesus did not come to make Israel great again. He did not come to make America great again. That's not the mission of Jesus. He's got bigger, a bigger mission in mind. And don't miss this. As we live in a world uh, that is, uh, we have been called by Christ to be in the world but not of the world, we are called to neither ignore politics nor put our hopes in them. See, I think there are two ways that we can respond wrongly to this. We can read a text like this and say, well, you know, we need to ignore politics. We don't need to vote, participate in government. Uh, we need to kind of find like maybe a commune somewhere out in the desert so that we can just live freely and not really sort of interact with culture around us. I think that's a wrong way. I don't think that God calls us to respond to culture in that way or to government. Uh, the other way is, is that um, we basically just watch Fox News and CNN on continuous loop day by day. And find our emotions getting stirred and angry about all the political you know, misgivings that are going on. We believe that uh, really our only hope as a nation, as a country, and for our own home is that we have a Jesus-like figure come and serve as president so that everything will be fixed. And yet we know that that's not what's going to happen, right? Like, yeah, it's good to in- invest ourselves in government. We have people in our, our congregation who work even for the governor. Um, and we're grateful for them and we pray for them. We want to pray for our governors and our, our government officials But yet at the same time, we know at the end of the day, what we really need is not just a new president, but we need King Jesus to come back, right? And that's exactly, I think, the mission of Jesus Christ, to explain that it begins with hearts that need to be changed and brought peace with God. And then at the end of days, when Jesus returns, he's going to set everything else right, and we're going to have the king that we all long for. See, we need to make sure that we have right expectations of Jesus as we look to Jesus. The expectations of the palm branches, they need to be tempered with the king who rode in on a donkey. So we need to look at the branches and understand that we need to evaluate our expectations, but we also need to look at this donkey to understand exactly what it was that Jesus wanted us to think about himself as he entered in. See, I believe this crowd actually spoke better than they knew. Of course, Psalm 118.22 also says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, speaking of Jesus. They expected a king who would arrive on a war horse. But instead, what they received was a king on a donkey. And I think that changes everything. So second, notice the king rides on a donkey in verses 14 to 16. You'll see in verse 14, he says this, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Now, just to be clear, ancients didn't see donkeys as ignoble. Kings rode on donkeys sometimes. Uh, David rode on a donkey. But donkeys have never been mistaken for war horses, okay? Nobody ever looked at a donkey and said, that's a great war horse. No, actually, oh, my bad, that's actually a donkey. That, that mistake's never made. In fact, there's this great scene in The Last Samurai. I like war movies. Y'all like war movies? I love war movies. And there's this, this scene where you have Tom Cruise, who is galloping into battle, and he's got all of his, his samurai dudes with him, and they're like going off, and they got all their samurai gear on with their swords blazing, they look awesome, and they're like running into this, this army. And as they're going, it just looks majestic. And you're looking at the horses, and even the horses look tough. I mean, they look strong, and like they're ready to fight, like they could like knock you out. And this is, it's exciting. And then I'm thinking about that scene as I read this, and I think, how different a movie that would be if those were donkeys? right? Just galloping into battle. Like, come on, let's go, Shrek. I mean, it would be different. It's a different kind of movie, right? Like, you don't have to explain that. You see it. And I think that's exactly the image that we have here. Like, nobody, like, misunderstood Jesus coming on a donkey as a mighty warrior that was going to make a political statement. 
He says, that's not me. That's not what I'm here about. I'm here to do something completely different. See, in the Old Testament, horses and chariots represent the most sophisticated war weaponry of the day to the extent that God constantly warns his people not to place their confidence in the strength of horses. See, in Psalm 147, 10 to 11, the psalmist writes, His delight, God's delight, it is not in the strength of the horse like men's are, nor is pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who, who hope in his steadfast love. That's who God delights in. So a modern equivalent of Psalm 147, 10 to 11 would be something like this. It's that God does not delight in the power of glocks or tanks or F-22s or nukes or glutes and calves of man, but in those who fear him and hope in his steadfast love. And that's exactly the, the, the message that we get is Jesus comes riding in on that donkey. This is one who represents the peace of God, who trusts in God, that the victory that he is coming to bring, it is not going to be found in the power of the animal that he's riding. He's not trusting in advanced weaponry. God himself is going to fight for him. In other words, Israel would have expected a political power to enter in on a war horse, but that is not what they got. And they should have expected that, that it would be a political warrior entering on a horse, unless, unless they read their Bibles. And I think that's what John wants us to see here. Like your expectations are wrong because you haven't been reading your Bibles rightly. You haven't been looking to the scriptures in the way that you, you ought to. See, I believe John is highlighting that even the disciples missed Jesus in verse 16 because they didn't understand what the Word of God said. See, when he was present with these disciples face to face, they still missed Jesus. I I just don't know how you do that. And it was because John says they weren't reading the Scriptures well enough. They weren't looking at Jesus and looking at the Word. Now, did you catch how John captures this moment? Jesus found this young donkey and he sat on it. That's what he did. And there are at least, I think, two important points that we need to take hold of in this text. First, notice that he says it is written. And second, we'll see that there is something important about what is written. So that it is written and what is written, both important. First, that it is written in verses 14 and 16. He says, just as it is written... In other words, he's not leaving it out of context. He puts it in context, and he's placing it in the context of the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophecy. This statement means here, I believe, as he's saying that Jesus mounting this donkey is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or or Lord. There, There are no options. There is no middle ground here. He is, in taking and mounting this donkey, making a claim about himself and who he is. He is saying, I am the long-awaited Messiah. I mean, Jesus' action claims that his life, just think about this, the audacity of it, is the culmination and climax of the message of the Old Testament expectation of a Messiah. That's a little bit more than saying you are the man. That is saying you are the man of all men. And you are also the God-man. I mean, who says stuff like this? Uh, You remember, uh, I mean, you you think about this, and and, and this is kind of like, I think what it sounds like Jesus saying to somebody who would have been a contemporary. And and I think sometimes we lose lose the audacity of it. But it would be something like Jesus saying, you remember Zechariah 9.9, that prophecy that has been read and meditated upon by believers over centuries? Like, you remember that text that speaks of this crazy, like, you know, priest king that's coming that's going to be greater than King David, the greatest king we've ever known? 
Yeah, it's, it's talking about me ushering in a kingdom that knows no end, and that's how I view myself. Now, just so you know, ladies, if you ever meet a man that says this to you, run quickly. Jesus is that man. Jesus is the man, and he's the only one that can say this, that can say it as audacious as it is, and it be completely true. Now, by way of application, I just want you to think about this. Jesus tells the disciples, catch this, they can't even really understand and see him clearly when he's there face to face without the scriptures in their hands to help them interpret what they are seeing with their eyes. Did you catch that? Jesus is there face to face. And he says, you still need to look clearly at the scriptures if you want to rightly interpret what you're looking at. And even with that, it's only after his death and resurrection that we find in verse 16, which John calls his glorification, that they really can understand better. See, I think there are a lot of folks these days that are pursuing mystical experiences with Jesus through mediums other than the Bible, like creation, leaves, you know, uh, special paths, all kinds of things. And I think it's great. I think it's great to read Scripture, to meditate deeply on God's Word, to ask for wisdom, trusting that God gives it, and expect that the Holy Spirit will lead and prompt you with wisdom from above. I believe that. But if the disciples needed Scriptures when they spent time with Jesus face-to-face to understand who he was, I think so do we. In fact, verse 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, speaking of his death, resurrection, and ascension, then in that glorifications, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, for John, this life, death, burial, and resurrection, once those things happened, he says they were able to see more clearly. Once the Spirit was given, they were able to understand more clearly and be led in all truth. So John would say, you need the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is. You need the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is. If you think you can know Jesus without the Old Testament, then you are missing a whole lot of Jesus. Anybody here want to miss a lot of Jesus? Not me. I wasn't raising my hand. Like, I was just saying, you can raise your hand. I don't want to miss Jesus. But second, notice, it's not just important that it was written, but what was written. Verse 15. Notice, like the other gospel writers, John points to Jesus riding on a donkey as a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And I believe that as he's quoting Zechariah 9.9, like a lot of the other Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, I believe that what he actually has in mind is the whole context of Zechariah and what's going in the book of Zechariah. See, he has that whole book in mind as he's quoting this verse. In other words, I believe that when he's coming in on that donkey, he's pulling Zechariah with him, Right? And he's saying, like, let me tell you what this means. Look at Zechariah. This is what this means that I'm riding on this donkey. See, he says, fear not, daughter of Zion, in verse 15. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, catch this. Zechariah, he is an Old Testament prophet, second to last book in the Old Testament. And he is prophesying two centuries after Assyria turned Israel into distant memory, taking them into exile and scattering them into the nations. And he returned with Zerubbabel from the Babylonian exile of Judah. So he came back, Zechariah did with him. And during that time, they were attempting to rebuild the temple and and the glory of Israel, but they couldn't ever quite get it going. So that 
that rebuilt temple was always a little bit more shabby than chic. You know, it was always kind of like halfway to the glory that it used to be. And really kind of a, a trophy to remind them that they weren't back to their former glory. That they still had not returned to the glory that they had been in at the past. They are living not in the best of days, but in the day of small things. That's what they were reminded constantly of. Yet in the midst of this, Zechariah promises this hopeful message that doesn't quite correspond with what they see with their eyes. And and he says that he actually sees the coming of a, a greater king and a greater kingdom than what they have ever seen. So they're lesser than they've ever been, but he sees them as being greater than they've ever been in the future. He says this king is going to come from the branch of David, and he will be a king who is both a king and a priest in Zechariah 6, 13 to 14. So in Zechariah 6, 13 to 14, Just to give you context, here's what he says about this coming king. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. See, a priest king, greater than David, ruling and reigning. And then Zechariah 9.1 not only anticipates a greater king, but a greater kingdom. So in Zechariah 9.1, we find that there is this greater uh, kingdom that is coming. And the image that he gives would have caused any of the Jews that would have heard this in the original context to blush because it's so profound. It says in Zechariah 9.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Now you might be thinking, uh, God bless you, right? Like what's Hadrach? Never heard that word. Well, it's, it's because that's not a common word. We don't really find it anywhere else. But it's the name of a place that we've discovered is like actually north of the northernmost border of Israel. So when you think about it, Hadrach is to the northernmost boundary of Israel outside of that where their enemies would have come and descended from to take them into exile. So the north, they're thinking this is the place where our enemies have come and have taken us off from. And yet, we are told that the word of the Lord is actually against Hadrach. Now, there are two things I want to draw out here that give you context for why this donkey would have mattered. First, when this prophecy is given, God promises to reverse the fortunes of his people. He says, I'm going to reverse the fortunes of your people. You remember those enemies that came from the north? See, at this point, catch this, Israel no longer existed as a people. They had been scattered. And yet, God promises that this word, his word, will go and drive Israel's enemies out the same way they came in. You see that image? I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to actually take away your enemies myself. But not only that, second, there will be an escalation in the reversal that would exceed anything they had seen God do before. In other words, the the best is yet to come. See, Hadrach appears between the greatest extent of either Solomon or David's kingdom. It is beyond the greatest extent of anything that the great king Solomon and David ever knew. And the image that we have here, just imagine this, is that all Zechariah can see with his eyes are the halfway reconstructed ruins of the reigns of David and Solomon. And yet the Lord gives him this vision of a priest king reigning over a new creation that is centered in Jerusalem's throne where his authority extends beyond the most expansive boundaries ever known during Old Testament times. Like this is the future that awaits. And not only that, we find in verse 10 that it's going to go from shore to shore, that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. This is what we call eschatological escalation. In times, greatness beyond anything they have ever dreamed of. Or as we like to say here, the best days are yet to come. 
The best days are most certainly yet to come. And so Zechariah 9.9 announces the signal that the victory party is starting, saying, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. When you see that, those days have begun. Of course, Jesus is the righteous son who brought salvation to his people. Humble and mounted on a donkey, not proud and seated on a war horse. And Zechariah 9.10 actually speaks of God himself cutting off the war horse when his king shows up on a donkey, God himself will fight for this king. In fact, we know that Jesus did come to bring salvation, didn't he? And not just from human enemies, but from God himself, from his just wrath on sinners. See, he came to make a sacrifice as a priest and to be the sacrifice as our Pascal lamb, as John Stott calls him. He came to be the sacrifice and to make the sacrifice to bring a people to himself, to bring peace for us, between us and God. That is the good news of what Jesus Christ came and did. And I don't miss this. When Jesus mounts that donkey, he's stepping into that prophecy and makes the claim that he is the king who will usher in the greater kingdom marked by humility. And not only that, he's claiming that the victory will not be won by war horses, but by God himself. God will fight for his king and kingdom and bring him victory. Isn't that a beautiful image of, of humility? Have you ever thought about it in that way? Humility is, is in a way sort of saying, I'm going to step off of my war horse and my efforts, my, my trying to, to fight to, to get what I can right now where I can. Instead to say, I'm going to trust that God is God and that God is my provider, that I can trust that he will provide for my needs. I'm going to be faithful and trust God. I don't need to step outside of the boundaries of where God's placed me and what he's called me to. I've called to be faithful and trust God. Trust that God fights for his people. That's what humility looks like. Humility is trusting God to give you what you need as you're seeking to be faithful to him and the circumstances he's brought you into. I'm curious, could it be, as you think about this humble king, could it be this really hard for us to accept this humble king? And it's difficult not so much for what it says about Jesus and the kind of king that we expect or, or want, but what it, for what it says about us. I mean, this humble king is hard to accept because the cross means that our greatest need isn't salvation from the real external threats that are around us, and we have many external threats all around us. The Bible doesn't take those lightly. But what it really means is that we need to be saved ultimately from God's wrath and our sinful hearts, which rebel against our good God. I'm just wondering this morning if it's, if it's a reality that's hard for you to swallow what the cross says about us. The fact that we really are wicked people. Like that's just the reality of what the Bible says. Left to ourselves, we are sinners. We hate God. Does that, does that cause you to recoil in your soul? And, and if so, is it because you, you think it shouldn't be this way and I know it is? Or is it because you think I'm not really as bad as the Bible says I am? Well, can I just share with you this morning that the only way that you receive the humble Savior, this king that entered in on a donkey, that you really believe that he is who he says he is, that you really feel that conviction and weight of sin, is that you have a special meeting with the Holy Spirit where he helps you see reality as it truly is according to God's eyes. It is a blessing and a gift to realize and recognize that we are sinners that can only be saved by the grace of God. That is a miracle that happens in the human heart for us to see that. And it is judgment and horrible when we can't see ourselves as God sees us. It means that we don't reach out for the good that he's provided for us in Christ. There's none better 
But if we don't see ourselves as humble sinners in need of a humble Savior, then we won't reach for the Christ that is the only answer and the only good that we need. So this morning, I just, I just pray that, that, that if that's you and that it, it just causes your heart to like push back against God when you hear that you are a sinner against God and you say, I am not, I'm a pretty good person. I, I pray that you would be blessed with the gift of being able to see that we are all sinners before a righteous and holy God. And that the only thing that can save us is that he helps us to see ourselves as he sees us. But not only that, that you would know that there's a better way, that Jesus is the way, that he has come to save you, to bring you peace with God, so that when God looks at you, he looks on you through Christ, through his death for you, so that your rebellion, your wickedness, the sins that you know you have, have actually been forgiven in such a way that God sees you new. He sees you in Christ, the faithful son who has obeyed him in every way who came to walk the righteous path that you did not, so that it could be accredited to your account. See, that's the good news of what Jesus has, has done. But you won't reach for that Jesus if you don't sense your need for him, your utter need for him. And so my prayer is this morning that there's nobody here that doesn't sense that need and reach out to Christ. See, nothing less than God's Son on a cross could bring us the justice that we need. Nothing other than Christ, the perfect Son, coming and dying for us could save us from a just God. It is the only price that would pay it. It was the only thing that could bring us near to God. And that's exactly what Jesus brought to us as he rode into that town in Jerusalem on that humble donkey. See, our great donkey, I mean, our great enemy, isn't North Korea or Iran. It's spiritual forces of darkness, including, but not limited to, our own sinful hearts. See, Jesus on a donkey is a signal that God's, of God's initiative It's of God's initiative and power on display in weakness and humility. That's the way. That's God's mission to save us. See, Jesus rode up into the temple where he would later tear the veil that separated man from the presence of God, inviting his people in. That's the invitation that God gives us today. And don't miss the power and scope of Jesus' mission that we see in verses 7 to 19. Catch this third. This humble king raises the dead and draws the world. Did you see that? This humble king who we just talked about how humble and, and, and weak he came in a weakness of form, and yet he is the same one who raises the dead and draws the world. That's what humility happens, what happens to the humility of Jesus Christ. Uh, look there again with me in verses 17 to 19. Here's what he says. He says this. He says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now these people couldn't stop talking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now hopefully we can't stop talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And this crowd gathered to see the man that raises the dead. They want to see Jesus, will he do it again? And check the Pharisees. They say in verse 19 something quite different. You see that you are gaining nothing? You're not able to stop him. Look, the world has gone after him. Now just think about this. They are angry that people are talking about Jesus raising a man from the dead. Like how is that ever a bad thing when you raise somebody from the dead? Like maybe if it's a bad dude, but this is Lazarus. Seems like a pretty good guy. So how hard does your heart have to be to get angry about a resurrection? Now they also say, The world has gone after him. Now, this is obviously hyperbolic language. They are 
being a little bit excessive. Obviously, they don't believe the whole world has actually gone after Jesus or after Lazarus to hear this testimony. Uh, That's not obviously what they intended to say. Uh, I think they just had in mind all the Jews in Jerusalem uh, seem to be flocking to this guy, and it's, it's trouble for us. But I think they too have spoken better than they knew. See, world has an interesting meaning in John that I I believe is tipping the hat to the pervasive mission of this humble king. In other words, it's interesting. It it begins with this image of people waving palm fronds, right? And palm leaves and branches. Because they want him to be a political king of their their nation Israel. Their little nation Israel. And here what, what we see is this image of not just Israelites being drawn to Jesus, but the whole world coming to him. In other words, their vision is actually too small. Like God's vision, his mission, is way bigger than what their mission is. They want to keep everything parochial, and God says, no, the utter ends of the earth are going to be filled with my glory. Now, how do we get there? Well, the word world is interesting in John. You'll remember that, you know, world is used different ways in the Bible, but in John, John uses it in an interesting way. You'll remember in John 3.16, for instance, uh, he says, for God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, there, obviously, world isn't talking about, like, earth or the planet. It's actually talking about an unredeemed humanity without respect to ethnicity, right? Like, just all peoples. He's saying he he came for, for rebels, people that are enemies of his. He came for them. He sent his son for them. And so the world in John speaks of an unredeemed humanity, regardless of ethnicity, lost in rebellion against God. I mean, what kind of God would do such a thing? It's a loving God. So while the Pharisees speak out of exasperation, I think they also prophesy of this humble King Jesus and the way his death and resurrection would draw people from every tribe and tongue to himself such that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Or as God says in Zechariah 9.10, right after Zechariah 9.9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. The nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea. It's not just in Israel or in Jerusalem. Like the whole world is going to be his reign. And from the river to the ends of the earth, they will all be filled with the glory of God. See, I think this looks forward to the day Revelation speaks of when Jesus will come again. I think Zechariah 9.9 is speaking of the first coming. I think Zechariah 9.10 is telling us about the second coming. And on that day, Jesus won't be driving a donkey. He'll be driving a war horse. That's what Revelation says. See, we can't have the triumphant king if we don't first accept our humble king. And he came on a donkey, but he's coming back. Revelation 19.11 describes this. When Jesus comes at the second coming, this is what John sees. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, a war horse. And one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. See, that's going to be a great and fearsome day. When Jesus comes back. When he comes to bring victory. When he comes to uh, make every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Where his reign is over the all, all the earth. And you want to be ready for that day. But you don't have that day unless you receive the Savior. The humble Savior that came in on a donkey. So let me just encourage you today. If you haven't put your faith in Christ. I'd love to talk to you after the service about that. If you're somebody who's like struggling today with following Jesus and just needs to be encouraged, come and talk to us. We'd love to pray for you. But now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray for his help. Pray with